0: The Welcome to the Pittsburgh Oddcast, my name is Andrew Lindbergh, and I am the producer and uh, navigator of the ship, and with me as always is Mr. Odd himself, the star of the show, John Chalkowski.
1: Hello everybody. This episode is going to take you on a journey which you might not have even thought that you wanted to go down. <laughs> and uh, I'll explain this a little better um, by asking you, Andrew, a simple question. Who were the first people to fly an airplane?
0: The Wright brothers.
1: Well, what if I told you that you might be wrong and that not only was it, wasn't the Wright brothers, but it was an event uh, that happened right here in Pittsburgh,
0: PA? I would be gobsmacked.
1: Prepare to be gobsmacked. I came across something. So let me go back a little bit here. Uh, this is maybe about three years ago now. I'm regularly looking for interesting things in the old newspapers. I come across a newspaper about a man who was trying to invent a perpetual motion machine. Okay, so if you don't know what that is, that's a a machine that you could turn on once and walk away, and it would run forever. Uh, People have been searching for a way to do this since the beginning of time. Um, Westinghouse even looked into trying to create his own perpetual motion machine. Um, So this is another random article I found about, once again, another guy trying to come up with a perpetual motion machine, and next to this article, I see this. This is from 1899, Uh, a Pittsburgh airship. Gustav Whitehead of Oakland has completed a model. Gustav Whitehead of 7 Bates Street, Oakland has completed a model of an airship which is claimed to demonstrate the practicability of aerial navigation. Mr. Whitehead's model is six feet long, and according to scientists, is a wonder of mechanical construction. Its exterior resembles the most primitive types of flying machine, in that is a cigar-shaped body in which the machinery is placed. The body or hull of the vessel is constructed from aluminum, and the automotive power is furnished by two engines operated by gasoline. I see this in the paper. I'm like, what do they mean, a Pittsburgh airship? Like, what? Airplane? Like, what, what do they mean, right? And um, sure enough, um, I start looking for this guy, this Gustav Whitehead. I'm like, well, who's this guy? I mean, what a strange name, right? Whitehead, you know, like what kind of name
0: is this? Who is this guy? He'd be made fun of today.
1: Yeah. You know, what's the first thing you'd think about if I said to somebody, hey, uh, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say
0: whitehead? <laughs> right. Crazy facial blemish guy.
1: Right, pimple man. <laughs> right, so uh turns out years before the Wright brothers, this man, a steel worker at J&L Steel, an uh, engineer to be more specific, uh, would tinker in his garage uh, on Bates Street in Oakland. And uh, what he would tinker with was uh, building light and practical engines that could be used to uh, propel a machine, uh, whether that's on the ground or in the in the sky. And uh, one of the only reasons, the only ways you could try to find out about, uh, you know, how to test the capacity of these engines that he was building would, were to actually like, run them to their full capacity and they would explode. And uh Pittsburgh police have on record uh of them going to this guy's house on Bait Street and, and you know, with noise complaints and, and people wanting him to stop, you know, these bizarre experiments he's doing in his mad scientist library in the basement, you know, of his house. And uh he didn't stop. Uh in fact he continued to build. He himself goes back uh a few years before he came to Pittsburgh of being obsessed with the idea of man made flight. And what it would take to get something that's heavier than air to be up in the sky. I mean, it's been man's, you know, mankind's dream since the beginning. Leonardo da Vinci, you know, coming up with ideas of how to, you know, fly and uh, you know to be like the bird. Um, how do you do it? <laughs> you know, it still amazes me when you see a, uh, you know, giant airliner up in the air i'm like how does that thing stay up in the air especially when you're <laughs> in one yeah so it's a uh it just boggles my mind it boggles everyone's mind and especially this gustav here and um the more i start looking into this guy he came here to pittsburgh poor you know he he got that job down at jnl start tinkering in his garage german immigrant german immigrant um spoke little english it was, uh, gustav weisskopf was his actual name they americanized it the Whitehead
0: oh good yeah
1: so the uh he uh he had a wife and he had a couple kids and they um you know, he was busy doing this at night and experimenting on his free time and he would experiment with hand gliders and experiment with other kind of non-engine flying machines um but according to some reports and uh, the reason why i bring up that newspaper article and also uh Is the fact that he claimed that in December or, uh, well, also April and May and also later December of 1899, that he indeed did successfully fly an airplane, something that was heavier than air with an engine in it, with multiple people inside this machine here in Pittsburgh. Yeah.
0: Okay. But can that be proven? Well,
1: that's where the story gets strange. And let me explain. I uh I, I, I come across a, a lady uh, named Stella Rudolph, right, who was a journalist and who was alive during the nineteen thirties, and she stumbles upon the same way I stumbled upon a newspaper article about this man uh flying an airplane. Except she had the the she was lucky enough to be around during the time period where some of these people that were involved or, or knew him, uh she could actually go and talk to them interview them, uh, find the chief of police, uh, people that were fire captains, that witnessed events, uh, friends of his, his wife, you know, all these people were still alive. And she even brought along uh, paperwork to get a signed, notarized affidavit from these individuals uh, trying to prove, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt that this man flew an airplane um, here in Pittsburgh. Uh, Where it gets strange and odd is when you start reading these eyewitness reports from reputable people, um, there seems to be something more to the story than what we were told. And uh, let me explain. Here's an actual eyewitness report, a man who claimed to have flown with him here in Pittsburgh. His name was Louis Darovich, right? And he says, this is a direct quote from his signed, notarized affidavit. In approximately April of May of 1899, I was present and flew with Mr. Whitehead on the occasion when he succeeded in flying his machine, propelled by a steam motor on a flight of approximately half a mile distance and at a height of about 20 to 25 feet from the ground. This flight occurred in Pittsburgh, and the type of machine used by Mr. Whitehead was called a monoplane. They were unable to rise, we were unable to rise high enough to avoid, though, a three-story building that was in our path. And when the machine fell, I was scalded severely by the steam engine. And from those, I've uh, been firing the boiler. I was obliged to spend several weeks in the hospital, and I recall the incident of the flight very clearly, for Mr. Whitehead was not injured as he has been in the front of the part of the machine while steering it. So, what that witness statement says, if we just go by this one guy, okay, that in April, May of 1899, him and Gustav sat in some kind of machine that he built here in Pittsburgh and took off twenty to 25, you know twenty to twenty five feet in the air for a half a mile distance and crashed into a third story apartment
0: building. How do you convince a guy to do that if you're Gustav? Yeah. Hey man, you owe me that favor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Want to get brutally burned?
1: Right. And uh so you know, what's going on here? Like I I'm thinking well, what's the real story is this guy making it up like why would he make it up like why like uh, that's the one question you always have to ask yourself when it comes to this particular story is why um and i'll explain here's another eyewitness report this is by a man named martin divine who was the chief uh the fire chief of the fire company that recovered the wrecked airplane and he says that he recalls the late Gustav Whitehead in a, on an airplane of his construction, which I helped push on more than one occasion for multiple demonstrations. This plane was heavy, and I, although I was not present on the occasion of its flight, I did arrive immediately afterwards after a crash into a brick, third story of a brick building, a newly constructed apartment house, which I believe was on the O'Neill estate in Oakland. I recall that someone was hurt and was taken to the hospital, but I don't recall which one. I'm able to identify the inventor as Gustav Whitehead from the picture of the man that Miss, was shown to me by Miss Stella Rudolph, the lady who was writing this book. And the plane was heated with charcoal, and the place of most of the experiments was in the vicinity of the present McKee Place in Louisa Avenue in Oakland. Uh, Whitehead, who lived on Bates Street, uh, with several with some people named Morrow, was renting a part of their house, I believe. And he, and as definitely as I can recall, the plane was also upon wheels. There's a man named Martin Devine signed on the 15th of August, 1936, notarized. So right away, I'm like, well, what is this about? As far as I know, according to the back of my state quarter, the Wright brothers were the first people to fly. 1903. Airplane. That was in 1903. A Kitty Hawk, you know, North Carolina. It's on the back of every license plate from someone from North Carolina. What's this, 1899? What, what's this? You know, I was <laughs> like, how come I didn't hear about this? And the more you looked into it and the more you start diving into it, the stranger the story became. I came here on KDK and started to uh, on the morning show one day. Just mentioned that story. Uh, you know, I find that newspaper article and I read it on the air. And within a few hours, I get a phone call from the Ministry of the Interior of Germany. And he wants me to join an international team of researchers who are trying to prove beyond a doubt that Gustav Whitehead was the first human being to ever fly in an airplane that was heavier than air and not the right. Here's where it gets weirder. They claim that it happened in Connecticut. And the reason they say this is because later in life, he leaves Pittsburgh eventually, moves to Bridgeport, Connecticut, continues his flying experiments, except this time flo- flies over the Long Island Sound and returns successfully and lands the plane, witnessed by many people. Connecticut has actually gone so far as, within their state legislator, legislation, made a Gustav Whitehead Day you know, on their calendar and also declared Connecticut the birthplace of aviation, here's where they're all wrong is the fact that nobody was ever able to basically prove one way or another that any of this went down in Pittsburgh because of the lack of recorded records. What I mean by that is imagine yourself, this Miss Stella Rudolph, this lady who came here to Pittsburgh to um, investigate and try to find some of his friends and people that were involved or saw the witness the crash. Uh, What kind of trouble you would have to go through? in order to track down a newspaper article uh, from 1899 or even 1900, when he was still here in 1900, um, by hand. The only way he could have done it is to go to the Carnegie Library, uh, pull up an old file cabinet, filled with microfilm or microfiche, and go go through page by page by page, reading every single article, um, spending the time to go from January 1st, January 2nd, January
0: 3rd, right? And what year is she doing this? She's doing this in 1936. We're old enough that when we were in high school, we still had to do most of our research the old-fashioned way, and that was difficult enough. And this is, yeah. this is 1998, 1999 area, right? And she's in the 1930s trying to find this kind of stuff, even
1: more difficult. And, and one of the things that makes you know this show so different uh, than any historical type of show that's ever come before, and I can say that with confidence, is the fact that. For the first time in American history, most newspapers have been scanned and are available online, searchable by word. So when I got that phone call, right, from that, that guy in Germany and invited me to join this team of people that were already researching, turns out there was already a researcher here in Pittsburgh that they hired to do exactly that, to go through, because believe it or not, there's multiple newspapers that have not been scanned yet, like the Pittsburgh Commercial Gazette or the Pittsburgh leader or, um, the Pittsburgh Sun Telegraph, you know, all these newspapers have not been scanned online. They're not available online. The only way you're going to be able to find that newspaper is to go down to one of these archives that has it go page by page and look, and they hired this guy uh, who didn't do anything. He had no social life, I guess, you know, <laughs> and, uh, started January 1st, 1899. and went through every page of the newspaper. It took a month. This other man who was researching things at the Carnegie Library day by day ended up getting about 12 additional articles, okay, that weren't in the digitized newspapers. And then after I spent some more time and kind of honing down my skills to try to find more stuff, uh, we were able to compile a total of 37 newspaper articles, all talking about him flying here in Pittsburgh, that it was off the ground, you know, successful flying an airplane with people in it,
0: except that he crashed. These Articles are from 1899.
1: 1899, 1900, and, uh, and even farther down the road, like you find ones from 1902 that, that are talking about what he's doing in Connecticut, too. hear in the news, Pittsburgh newspapers will say, hey, do you remember when he used to do the experiments here in Pittsburgh? And he was such a, a big uh, thing, you know, a big, like, oddity here in Pittsburgh that the Pittsburgh Exposition Society, which is kind of like the uh, – The David L. Lawrence Convention Center, like one of those types of things that they would do every year, you know, they'd always have inventors or things coming. They offered him the opportunity to actually do a live demonstration, which he did. And it's in the it's in the actual um, brochure, you know, the the program from the 1899 Pittsburgh Exposition. Also, um, he he not that he wasn't on, he wasn't a man like a manned flight, but he showed the fact that it could happen. He brought the actual airplane there. They had it on display. They did put it up in the air, attached by, like, a hose to kind of keep it afloat. Uh, But they didn't show, like, anybody on it.
0: So it wasn't like, come watch a man crash into a building. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So I was contacted by a lady who ended up writing a book about this man that is close to uh, 400 pages long, not only here in Pittsburgh but also uh, in Connecticut and, and other places. Her father, believe it or not, was involved in researching this person, knew that Ms. that Stella Randolph, that researcher, and helped compile even more additional records uh, that were coming to light. Now, one of the, the things is that they generally agreed upon that this guy did fly an airplane in Connecticut, but did he even fly it in Pittsburgh? It was still kind of up to, up to debate. Um, nobody was able, ever able to prove it 100%. Uh, that was until (laughs) we joined the team and, uh, compiled this list of articles, all stating that he flew some kind of thing. Something happened, whether you want to call it because he crashed that one time that we know for sure he did fly that one time at 20 feet, 25 feet up in the air. And if it crashed, it crashed. Is that considered a successful flight or is that just some kind of test? 1903 comes around. So 1903. you know, he's doing these experiments here in 1899, 1900, 1901, 1902, 1903, all of a sudden, boom, Wright Brothers. First flight. They claimed for, they flew first. They get the credit. They get all the awards and honors. They uh, further the advancement of aerial navigation, further it to the point where we know airplanes today because of them.
0: So the Wright Brothers are the first in flight. Were there articles written about that flight? Were people there to witness that?
1: Well, uh, the answer is no. And that's but even though there the, were
0: people to witness, that's where the what story happened. gets weird. Because okay. when I think about history, mm-hmm. nothing was videotaped, obviously. Right, right. So, what makes Gustav not relevant and the Wright brothers relevant? Money
1: and the fact that they're not German immigrants—that's really what it comes down to. The sad truth of a kind of a anti-immigrant feeling, you know, or sentiment. Not that they were bad people, you know. It's just that. Americans like the fact that these homegrown Ohio boys did it first and not some kind of foreigner. No matter what the truth may be, they generally considered it a a way to kind of like overlook this immigrant who was, uh, you know, an inventor. And, you know, he tinkered on all these different things and possibly actually did it and successfully, I mean, crashed. But he did get up in the air. He did travel multiple feet. Well, the building was in the way. The building happened to be in the way. Right. So this is the argument that is now Which was probably out. built by immigrants as well.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly.
1: Here's where it gets really strange. If you look into the actual first flight of the Wright brothers, okay, in 1903, there were witnesses. The other brother, uh, one of the other brothers, like Wilbur Wright, two business partners and a lifeguard at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Their first flight, uh, according to history books, uh, went about 12 feet off the ground and less than uh, just a few yards basically a giant hop and uh and landed and everything was okay uh they did multiple tests that same day they did achieve what they wanted to achieve and they soon uh patented this idea of an airplane just like people are doing cars you know and driving cars that everybody has a car they thought everybody also have an airplane and uh you know some kind of george jetson type of stuff right <laughs> where uh anybody could uh, do this and if you could just invent that practical enough that you know the everyday man could fly his own airplane so whoever owned the technology and owned the patents to that technology were, came out as the winner and the Wright brothers did exactly that they patented the engine they patented the wings and how the, you know the, everything goes and there's no doubt about it that they did further advance all this type of technology uh you know of course all the people giving them money and they did they also had to overcome the people denying that they ever flew first, uh, but because they owned the patents by this time and the rights to navigation, if you wanted to build your air, your own airplane here in Pittsburgh or wherever the case may be, uh, you had to pay the Wright brothers to do it. The famous photo of the Wright brothers uh, wasn't produced to the public until well after World War One. You know, people, yeah, enough people were starting to question this now because other people, not just Gustav Weide, but others as well, have said that, hey man, we all did it before 1903, What's what's the deal? And the guy says, like, well, here's a photo of me on this exact date, you know, doing it and... and Holding up a newspaper. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. That's where it starts getting pretty strange, is kind of try and track this story, but, like, why would they want to do that? And it was money, was the main reason. Uh, but why discredit somebody who was trying to achieve the same dream as you and go forward, and uh, it just doesn't make any sense? Money. <laughs> yeah, money. It was all about the money. All about the Benjamins, right? So... You you get further and further into the story, and you, and you start finding um, people trying to debunk this Gustav Whitehead myth. So no sooner did I announce this on the air and got called and part of that international team where we all all contributed research to the Pittsburgh incident here. Uh, but they it sent a film crew out, and we filmed a documentary about it. And, and uh, basically that documentary almost beyond a doubt proves that this guy did at least something uh, all before 1903. Uh, whether it was here in Pittsburgh or here in Connecticut, uh, doesn't really matter because it's a, uh, it's, he did something and, uh, that was the key. But, uh, people have been trying to deny this guy's rightful place in history since the very beginning. And I'll give you a prime example. This is an actual small little letter written by none other than Orville Wright, specifically talking about Gustav Whitehead. This was published in the Reader's Digest in August of 1945. And it says the headline The Mythical Whitehead Flight by Orville Wright. In Reader's Digest, July of nineteen forty five, on page fifty seven under the heading The Man Who Knows Everything, appears an article by mister Weisinger condensed from the Liberty. We were astounded to read therein the following statement. It is during one of the, these programs, radio programs that Kane presented by Charles Whitehead of Bridgeport, Connecticut, the son of Gustav Whitehead, the first man to fly in heavier than air machine. Two years, four months, and three days previous to the Wright fly at Kitty Hawk. Orville Wright goes on to say, This is the second time that Reader's Digest has done this. We don't know why. It has placed itself seemingly in the position of wishing to prove that the Wright brothers were not the first to fly. It is not so long ago as the Crow Flies that Reader's Digest published an article by a woman under the head, Santos Dumont, father of flight. We asked the first man in the world to fly with his brother Wilbur, co-invented on the airplane, to give us the facts. And that's what the editor's saying about this article hmm. and um by this time you know they were considered national heroes uh they had giant monuments built in their name well, like i said they're on the state quarter of you know of ohio right they're on the last lic- license plates of every north carolina person um they you know there's a right state university named after them there's you know it goes on and on and on these kind of you know honors that they were able to secure and uh and why on purpose? That, and Orville made a, a big deal about really trying to prove Gustav wrong and saying that there is no evidence, zero evidence, uh, that he did anything other than maybe do a couple hops off the ground and then called it a day. But he never flew a plane, ever, not once. Meanwhile, we got this abundance of what seems to be evidence of him doing something here in Pittsburgh. Clearly, you know, years before eyewitness statements, People that were reputable people, actual physical records, you know, things that were going on like fire records, police reports, and also all the newspaper articles that correspond to all of this stuff. Through all this research, through the Freedom of Information Act, okay, the able to secure the contract for the actual deal that the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum made with the Wright family estate talking about the um, very first human flight on record. The claim of the first flight, here's, here's what they consider the first flight. This is a signed statement from 1908 by Wilbur and Orville Wright and it says, the first flight lasted 12 seconds, flight very modest compared to what that of birds, but is nonetheless the flight in the history of the first flight in the history of the world in which a machine carrying a man has raised itself over its own power into the air in free flight, has sailed forward in a level course, without any kind of reduction of speed, and finally landed without being wrecked. The second, it was a little bit longer, and the fourth lasted almost 50 seconds, covering the distance of 52 feet over the ground against a 20-mile-per-hour wind. So in that statement saying that everything that's ever happened right before 1903, before they did it, okay, is not true. They, they state in their own words that it's the first man-powered flight ever.
0: Well, I noticed they put a little caveat in there not crashing
1: yes and here's the next there's the kicker of the whole story so you know all this stuff could be you know you could say one thing or another about uh gustav whitehead and whether he did it or not did it but if he didn't do it why would you write in a contract mind you okay so this is by the actual smithsonian air and space museum uh signed with the the Wright family estate it makes this following statement and i quote section d okay of the contract for the dollar the smithsonian was struggling to get people to come there okay during the 1940s and they wanted to kind of secure certain historical artifacts that so they could put it permanently on display like uh you know charles Lindbergh's plane and amelia Earhart's, you know stuff attached to her and they wanted the right brothers airplane the that you know that first thing and they made a caveat in the in the in the contract and here's Verbatim what the contract says. This was available the only reason we were able to get this was through the Freedom of Information Act. I quote Neither the Smithsonian Institution or its successors, nor any museum or any other agency, bureau, or facilities administered by the United States of America by the Smithsonian Institute or its successors shall publish or permit to be displayed a statement or label in connection with or in respect of any aircraft model or design of built of any earlier date. Than that of the Wright airplane of 1903, claiming in effect that such aircraft was capable of carrying a man under its own power in a controlled
0: flight. Basically, of you're not allowed to change history contract,
1: uh, or you could say history by contract, saying that this is it, this is the story that we were going to tell as the Smithsonian Institution, and no matter what the Wright brothers did, it anybody comes forward saying it's before 1903, that's just fake. So, now, Gustav's not the only one. So, Gustav might have been one of the first, okay, in 1899.
0: And he's the most important because it happened here in Pittsburgh. That's right. That's right.
1: Pittsburgh first, right. Pittsburgh first. There's other people who have come later on, you know, that said they did it too, including another Pittsburgher, a guy named Samuel Langley, who later became the curator of the Smithsonian Museum. But uh, he did early experiments as well with aviation and, and created some aircrafts that could fly, but they couldn't fly with people on them, or they weren't heavier than air. Uh, so, it doesn't technically count. And, now, I didn't know this. You know, when I first started researching this guy and this guy's story about Gustav Whitehead, I didn't realize that I would actually be getting a real life conspiracy done by the United States government. But it turns out, at least according to this contract from the Smithsonian, that it's true.
0: And this isn't some sort of like Illuminati Area 51 (laughs) thing. This is just a money business thing.
1: Exactly. And it does make you think, well, you know, what else, right, They have contracts for? According to this, they definitely have—they 100 percent have one for when it comes to the first flight, and uh, it's gonna be pretty hard to explain yourself out of that. Uh, You know, when uh, there's abundance of evidence. I mean, an abundance. I mean, not only the stuff that I, you know, I helped track down here in Pittsburgh—that 37 pages of research. But there's 400 other pages of additional research that all show that something happened. It's not that they were wrong. The rights aren't wrong, right? The rights are right, you know, and they uh, they did uh, achieve a lot and a lot of accomplishments. And they're not some kind of fluke or something to be written out of history just because they might not have done it first. Because that's the other question you have to ask yourself: What's more important? Who did it first? or who successfully like molded into what it is today. You know, lots of people do things first, but you know, does that matter if you can't like finish it and follow up with it? Um, according to history, it does. So it's just a matter of, uh, what I wanted to achieve or, um, in this whole program of the whole Gustav Whitehead community is to kind of make sure that kids and everybody, uh, know that there were other people, People just as smart, just as intelligent from other countries, you know, and from here in America that all had that same kind of goal, you know, to to further the advancement of technology and navigation and that it took many people along the way to make this thing happen. And not one person or brothers in this case should be able to lay claim to that fact.
0: Well, it's even said in the Wrights Journal, that they went to Gustav Whitehead. Yeah, yeah. So even if he's not the first in flight, even if the fact that he contributed to the official mm. first in flight is not even recognized. Correct. Let and, alone the fact that he was probably the first person to do it here in Pittsburgh.
1: Right. Yeah, that and uh, you know Glenn Curtis, who's the person they ended up choosing to go with for their uh, the Wright Brothers engine design, also used aluminum from Alcoa. Well, so, I don't even
0: know that name.
1: The fact being is that there was a Pittsburgh connection to the first flight w- w- no matter what.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> we, You can't avoid us. Yeah, you can't avoid us. Whether it happens
1: in 1903 or 1899, we're here for good. So that's what makes this story just so fascinating is the fact that somebody, you know, an immigrant, a steel worker, uh, could achieve all this kind of fact and go under the radar until someone 80 years later stumble across an article they weren't supposed to see. And, uh, kind of try to develop it further and see where it goes and, and to give this guy's name a recognition. One of the key elements of this story is the fact that what, what Gustav was doing was in fact illegal. And he was warned multiple times by the Pittsburgh police to cease operations, making documentation almost impossible to find. It does not help that in 1899 claiming that you invented a heavier than air machine, uh, that works. It was akin to seeing Bigfoot. Records have been almost impossible to locate until the advancement of technology finally caught up with us today, uh, which is why most people have never just heard his name. It's not meant to discredit or say anything wrong about the rights, uh, and, and they did have their own amazing accomplishments. But for your consideration, to be presented for the very important first in aviation history, it should be considered from this moment forward that the first successful manned, powered, heavier-than-air controlled flight in the history of the world happened right here in Pittsburgh. That's something to uh, ponder and consider, right?
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's a game-changer.
1: Yeah, uh, I guess so. someone call the textbook factory, right? <laughs> you know, it's time to uh, rewrite history. Um, so you're going to find out lots of tales. I mean, you figure we're doing this every week. We're going to have 50-something shows. So we got a lot in store a lot and planned uh, a lot of good stuff so keep on tuning in and uh until next time that's it fort pit